All right, everybody, welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. Uh, my name is Chris Denson, and uh, I always say the same intro, Lee, but I, I need to come up with a new introduction. But I'm going to go through the thing anyway, and then you can back me up on this. How about, how's that sound? Okay. All right. Uh, so in case you guys are tuning in for the first time, this show covers all things marketing, innovation, ideas, um, and, you know, the smart people behind them and making them happen. And uh, today is kind of like the godfather of ideas and entertainment um, in, a, in a very special sense. Uh, Lee Zlotoff, say hello. Hi, everyone. <laughs> hello. Um, so uh, I'm very excited. I have a, you know, the show is called Innovation Crush, and I truly do have an innovation crush on you. Um, take that how you will. But uh, so if you don't mind, because I'll get all excited and giddy, if uh, just giving us a, a little bit of a 101 on who Lee Z is, and then we'll, we'll get into some, some hard questions and, and thoughts. Sure. So I have uh, primarily been a writer, producer, and director in the entertainment business for, oh, I guess longer than it's politic to talk about anymore. But um, And uh, I suppose I am uh, best known for two things. One is uh, I wrote and directed a movie called The Spitfire Grill, which did uh, won the Audience Award at the Sundance Film Festival. And probably even more importantly, I am the creator of MacGyver, which, uh, you know, far beyond my wildest imaginations has turned into sort of a global phenomenon. Woo! I'm going to just applaud you for that, see? Um, so, no, speaking of that, you know, when you say something has become a global phenomenon, um, you do a pretty good job of explaining that, right? When, you know, when I go onto the website, I'm, especially when I click on the uh, the international tab, and I'm like, oh uh, my gosh, there's, <laughs> you know, MacGyver in literally every, almost every language. Um, but just kind of, kind of walk us through a little bit of, like, the phenomenon that it is, just in case people uh, don't believe me. Well, well, MacGyver debuted in 1985, which is this year now, 30 years ago, and it has run continuously around the world since that time. And as popular as it has been in North America, it is infinitely as popular in South America, Asia, Europe, the Middle East. I mean, there's hardly a country in the world you can go to where if you say MacGyver, they don't know what you're talking about. So this thing just kind of took off by itself and, and as I say, has, has never stopped running in 30 years. So I, I don't know how many more shows you can say that about. Uh, there probably <laughs> no, are some, but not many. Yeah. Um, no, that's pretty awesome. And, and you know, I'm sure you've been asked this question a ton of times. But what do you, you know, what do you relate the success of the show to? So, so I looked at this pretty hard. Um, you know, over time, as clearly it, it became obvious what was happening, and. And I came to the conclusion that there were sort of three key elements of what I now call sort of MacGyver core values. And the first is that he doesn't pick up a gun. MacGyver doesn't use a gun. Now, to be brutally honest, I did that for purely dramatic purposes, because obviously if he doesn't pick up a gun and he can't shoot his way out, he's going to have to find another way to solve the problem. But I think that made him extraordinarily accessible to a lot of people. Now, in the United States, we're, you know, we're comfortable with the notion 
that pretty much anybody, anywhere, anytime can get their hands on a firearm. But that's not really true in the rest of the world. The rest of the world doesn't really have access to guns. Um, You know, there are militaries, there are criminals, and, you know, then there are the rebels who want to become the militaries. But other than that, the vast population of the world doesn't have access to firearms. So I think that made him really you know, kind of familiar and accessible in a certain crucial way. It certainly was very popular, I know, just from the letters and emails that I got. So I'd say that was one element. Then obviously, take whatever was available at the time and figure out a way to put it together in, uh, you know, in some original structure so that, you know, MacGyver could get himself out of a jam or defeat the bad guys or whatever it was. And again, to most of the world, they don't have access to the kind of technology that the developed world is necessarily familiar with. And so here again, I think that made him really accessible to everybody because it's like, you know, what this guy does, we do that every day just to survive. <laughs> it's, it's so true. <laughs> and so, and so we, we recognize this guy. And then I think the third thing was, you know, as life-threatening a situation as MacGyver would find himself in, he always approached it with a sense of humor and humility. And I think that really endeared him to to people. Um, and so I, I think if you kind of look at those sort of three core values, um, which, by the way, you know, now I think are great management tools for the 21st century, which is A, avoid conflict, since chances are going to war is only going to get you into another war. Right. We're currently experiencing in Iraq, where we thought, oh, the war's over, we brought everybody home, and guess what, now we got to start going back there. Um, So conflict tends to generate more conflict. It doesn't usually resolve things forever. Um, And the second core value is what MacGyver did with that resourcefulness, which is, okay, how do you turn what you have into what you need? Because that's something we're all going to have to learn how to do as, you know, the population of this planet expands and the resources, food, water, energy, continue to kind of shrink. And then I think the third value is in some ways equally important, which is as intractable as the problems might seem, we all need to approach them with a sense of humor and humility because anger, hatred, fury, that kind of passion rarely leads to successful resolutions or good ideas for solving problems. Usually it's when you're relaxed and laughing uh, and humble that you're able to come up with an idea that, that may work for everybody involved as opposed to just you. Or, or so, after a lot of drinks. Well, that always helps too, but usually, you know, a lot of drink leads to at least to more conflict. laughter. Hopefully it doesn't end in violence. But yeah, laughter and conflict. It's, it's all cyclical. Um, so I want to put this in context for the audience because otherwise just uh, I don't want it to sound like, hey, this guy's been thinking about MacGyver for 30 years. <laughs> um, but I do – like the one thing that amazed me, you know, kind of when I, I discovered you uh, was the MacGyver method, right? Um, this practice, this way of 
of thinking, this way of being you've kind of brought into the world and been able to to sort of teach people how to apply the the sorts of mechanics and thinking and you know ingenuity that goes into what MacGyver is. So can you can you tell us a little bit about the MacGyver method and and how it came sure. to be? Uh, absolutely. Um, so when I was uh, you know starting out in the episodic television business, which means like the hour business as opposed to the half hour sitcom business. Um, you know, there were only like three writers on staff. These days, in our shows, there's usually seven, eight, ten writers on staff. Just change of the times. But right. at the time, I was responsible for coming up with every third, sometimes every second episode. And I had to crank out an enormous amount of creative material in very tight time frames. And I discovered that the best stuff came to me now when I was sitting at my typewriter, that's how far back it goes, gang. This was before computers. A what? I'm um, sorry. What did you, did you call yeah, it? Yeah, they gave us electric typewriters. That was kind of the state of the art of the time. Nice. So no, no Wi-Fi on that thing. You don't need you just. Uh... <laughs> Nobody even knew what Wi-Fi was. So, um, And I discovered that the best stuff came to me not when I was sitting at my typewriter, but when I was either driving or taking a shower. And. And I thought to myself, okay, why is it that the best stuff always comes to me when I'm driving or taking a shower and not when I'm quote unquote working, trying to come up with something good. And the answer was because when you're driving or taking a shower, or doing one of a hundred other activities, your conscious mind is preoccupied. You have to pay attention when you're in the shower. You have to pay attention when you're driving. Even though it's kind of second nature, you know, you got to look where you're going. You got to know where the car in front of you is and the cars on either side and what the traffic lights are doing and, you know, what route you have to take. You sort of have to pay attention, even though driving is kind of second nature. And the same is true in the shower. You don't want to get water up your nose or soap in your eyes or slip and fall, you know, although right. you always take a shower the same way every day. I don't know many people who get creative with how they take showers, you know, so, and, and because your conscious mind is occupied, it allows your subconscious mind to really now offer you the answers that you've been looking for. And I thought to myself, well, this is really interesting. So is there a way I can do this that doesn't require me having to jump in the car or go running around Hollywood looking for a shower? Because I did that, you know. Um, <laughs> or you could just get a, a shower in your car. Well, you could do now, that too. It gets a little, you got to drill holes in the floor though so the water drains out. <laughs> but anyway, so, so I realized that the conscious mind was really not the mind that was best at coming up with solutions. It was really my subconscious mind. And I asked myself, is there a way that I can access my subconscious mind on a regular basis? And the answer was yes. So I put a workbench in my office and to distract my conscious mind, I built models. So I would go to the whiteboard and I'd say, I need an episode. I mean, they're standing outside my door, you know, tapping their feet saying, we need a new episode, Lee, what do you got? So I would write on the board, what is this episode about? And then rather than stand there and rack my brain, I would say to my subconscious, you're the one with all the good ideas. You come up with a new episode. <laughs> I'm going to go work on this stupid model. You know, build the Empire State Building out of paper. Right. Well, 
I built every monument in the world they had out of paper. I built the Taj Mahal. I built the Vatican. I built the Brooklyn Bridge. I, I kid you not, if they had a kit to build something out of paper, I built it. Not because I needed the Brooklyn Bridge or the Taj Mahal, but because it was a great way to get my conscious mind distracted and actually not thinking about the problem and let my subconscious mind work on the problem. So I'd work on this stupid model for, you know, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it was. And then I'd go back to the board and I'd say to my subconscious, all right, guys, what do you got for me? I need an episode. And I would just start writing. And damn, if ideas didn't start pouring out of me. And so I just put them all up on the board and I'd go, well, I like this and I like this. Okay, here's the next question. What are my act breaks? Because when you're writing an episode, you kind of got to know where the sort of high points of the story are going to be. Right. And I do the same thing. I wouldn't stand there and try and figure out the act breaks. I just write the question on the board and then I go, well, I can work on that stupid model. So a typical day, I might spend six, six and a half hours working on that model maybe an hour an hour and a half at the whiteboard how did that make how did that make the the producers feel when they when they walked in and witnessed this well they usually thought i was crazy (laughs) (laughs) because because i could break an entire story in a day and they'd say how did you just break an entire story in a day usually takes you know a writer minimum of five or six days sometimes 10 days to sort of break out a right. story he said how did you do this in a day i said well i just didn't think about it yeah you know and it's <laughs> funny say, because we, okay we don't really <laughs> care what you're doing just keep doing it so, right no so, it's weird to say that because you know I, I think about like it's when you when you employ methodologies like that right and and you have people that you're um that you're answering to, and on on the show, we we talk to a lot of people who have the leisure or the pleasure or, or the the privilege of being able to think freely and do freely, and that's where some of the best creativity comes from. But you always have to answer to somebody, so it's interesting that you had that dynamic, um, and but we're able to prove it, you know, time after time. Well, you know, it it turns out that because we're awake three quarters of the time. You know, you wake up in the morning and that hamster cage of thoughts starts whirring around in your head. And, you know, at least three quarters of the day, since most of us don't get eight hours of sleep or more, you know, we're conscious, okay? And we think that's the greater part of our consciousness. And the subconscious is maybe this little thing that pops up when we're sleeping from time to time and we remember a dream. Well, it turns out that that's really not the case. It turns out the subconscious is massive and the conscious mind is is really only the keyboard. I mean, your conscious mind is really just the interface. The thing that's really doing all of the processing and and ultimately making all of your decisions, even though you think they're conscious, is your subconscious. Madison Avenue has known this forever, which is why commercials are designed to go right past your conscious and right into your subconscious, which is, you know, they're talking about deodorant. But the message is really, if you don't use this stuff, you're never going to get laid. You're going to be a social outcast, you know, and, is that what and, to me? and uh, you will man. rot and wither. It's <laughs> <laughs> a pretty powerful message. Um, so... Uh, so anyway, so so I found a way. So 
so I found a way to basically take what was a constant passive dialogue between our conscious and our subconscious. And I, using this very simple procedure, I found a way to make that into an active dialogue. So you can directly engage with your subconscious. You can ask it anything. You can ask it a dozen questions. You can give it all the parameters you want. And then you don't think about it and you go do something else Preferably that's enjoyable, but but that really occupies your conscious mind so it can't get in the way. And then your subconscious will actually provide you with some amazing answers, more often than not, answers that your conscious mind would never have thought of. Now, in in one talk I saw that you gave, you quantified this, right? There was a a specific number of thoughts and things you can process with your conscious mind versus your subconscious Mm -hmm. mind. Um, Yeah, so so a a noted cellular biologist who looked at a lot of brain cells was a guy named Dr. Bruce Lipton, who was ultimately so blown away by what he saw that he started writing metaphysics as opposed to just science. And he theorized that the conscious mind was capable of processing 40 bits of information a second, but that the subconscious mind was capable of processing 20 million bits of information a second. So that's, that would mean that the subconscious mind was 500,000 times more powerful at processing information than the conscious mind. And then the University of Pennsylvania Medical School did a follow-up study. And they theorize that the conscious mind is actually capable of 2,000, processing 2,000 bits of information a second, but the subconscious mind was capable of processing 400 billion bits of information a second. Okay, so that's, that's a difference of 200 million times more powerful processing. So, so let's assume for the moment that they're both off by a factor of 100. I mean, they're just wildly over-exaggerating right. the difference between the two. That would still mean, if you divide those two differences by 100, it would still mean that your subconscious mind is somewhere between 5,000 and 2 million times more powerful than your conscious mind. So then the question becomes, why would you use your conscious mind to figure out anything when you have this massive computer at your disposal that is ready to do whatever you ask it to do? Because it's your subconscious. It's already trying to work with you. All you have to do is ask it directly and it will give you the answers you're looking for. And its depth and breadth is more vast than any library you could possibly imagine, even more powerful than search engines like Bing and Google, you know, because they'll, they'll, they'll go through a few million things in a few seconds and your subconscious mind can literally go through billions of possibilities in the same amount of time. How is it? Like, you know, where's, and I don't know if you know this, but like the scientific mechanics of being able to process that many thoughts and, or that many just, you know, things uh, in a very short period of time. Time, you know, I, I heard you speak a little bit about um, the what the subconscious mind records, right? It, and it records literally everything you've ever come across. Um, as probably- far as, as yeah, as far as I can tell, um, and again, there is a limited amount of research on this, but as far as I can tell, every thought, every thing you've ever seen, tasted, read, felt, smelt handled, you go through it all, 
is all stored away in your subconscious. There are these people who are called, uh, I believe they're called SAMs, which stands for Special Super Annotated Memory, okay? You may have seen, they did a piece, a couple pieces on 60 Minutes, Mary Lou Henner and a couple of other people, where they say to them, okay, uh, Tuesday, uh, February 12th, uh, 1965. And they go, oh yeah, I was wearing my flowered pajamas, my mom made pancakes, but then she dropped the milk and was cursing and we were going to be late for school. And they can recall every moment of their lives in astonishing detail. Now you think, well, wow, that's amazing. What's amazing though, is not that those memories are there, but that they have access to them. Because the truth is, we all have all those memories. We just don't necessarily have the ability to get to them whenever we want. And that's what makes them unique. But that stuff must all be stored in all of us. And we do have access to it when we're trying to solve problems if we engage directly with our subconscious. Now, why did you care? Right. Like why? Why? After you like, you know, most people that you know who have created a television series, like they move on to the next project. Right. Like and obviously you saw some social glue about, you know, ingenuity and back against the wall and, you know, the ability to problem solve with humor and humility. But to turn this into what's your life's work at this point in time, you know, why? Like where did that passion and, you know, uh, tenacity come from? Well, it comes from it came from a couple things. So I have uh, now four grown children, and and believe it or not, I have four grandchildren at wow. least so far. Um, and I I looked, you know, and when you start having children and then grandchildren, it's not so hard to imagine your grandchildren having children. And so I kind of looked down the road and I looked at this century and I said, you know, this is a critical century. If we get this century right. Civilization has a future. If we don't get this century right, I'm not convinced that that's the case. And so one of the reasons I'm bringing MacGyver back, we did a graphic, I mean, we did a comic book series and then a graphic novel. We did a, a mobile app game called MacGyver Deadly Descent last year. We're working on a feature film. We're working on a musical. We're working on a live experience called MacGyver's Maze, which We'll probably do a Kickstarter campaign on in, in a couple of months. There's a MacGyver Foundation was because I said, look, there are literally billions of people around the world who love this character. And all I have to do is remind them that these are good approaches to solving problems. Don't pick up a gun, avoid conflict, start trying to figure out how to turn what you have into what you need and try to do it with a sense of humor and humility. These are good tools for managing the 21st century, whether as an individual, a community, a country, or a globe. And then the MacGyver method, you know, a friend of mine who was launching an internet company was jammed up with problems, you know, that didn't have any simple or, you know, textbook answers. And he ended up using this technique that I had showed him. And he came to me and he said, you got to put this out there, man. This is the Swiss army knife of the mind. Okay. <laughs> this is a way that we can really use our human resources, all of us, what we have available to come up with better solutions to the problems we're all facing and are going to face. So he said, you got to put this out there. And he was right. And so I said, okay, I'll put it out there because I have the rights to MacGyver. I'm going to call it the MacGyver method because in effect, that's really what it is. 
It's like you have more resources than you think are at your disposal, and you can solve problems you didn't think were solvable. That's, I mean, that, that's pretty awesome. Um, and then, you know, can you give us like, – how does it exist, right? When, you, when, you, when somebody calls you and says, we need the MacGyver method, like is it, you know, is it a, a workshop? Is it a day-long thing? Is it, you know, two months' worth of check-ins? Like how does it, how does it actually live and breathe? <laughs> so, so there are a couple of formats. Uh, we, I, I am, in fact, working on a book, which I think will be out sometime this year. You can go to the uh, MacGyverMethod.com work a website and and sign up for a copy of the book or let us know that you want to uh, be notified when the book is ready. I do give talks. Uh, I have given talks at Harvard and JPL and corporations. I've given talks in Rome and, and you know universities all around the country. Uh, I'm I'm going to Stanford uh, University in a couple of weeks to give a talk about this. So I do give talks and then I do workshops. Uh, there are one day workshops. And then there are week-long workshops. So it just sort of depends, you know, kind of what your resources are and how intensively you want to look at this. I've done I've done a workshop a week a week-long workshop online with people who are literally scattered all over the country and in Europe. Um, so you know, it's eminently teachable. Okay, it's not complicated. Mostly, it comes down to a, a few basic, simple rules and and procedures, and then you have to kind of adapt these to your own working style and your own circadian rhythms and all that stuff. But it's not hard. It requires, you know, you don't have to meditate. You don't have to, there are no drugs. There's nothing, you know, you don't have to eat a special diet. It's, no drugs. This is the way <laughs> I'm out. your mind works, you know, <laughs> and all you're doing is basically tapping into uh, and directing and focusing the way your mind is already trying to work. Um, that's great. And, and, when I think about, you know, a, a busy CEO or even, you know, lower down on the on the the uh, the corporate rung, um, the number of things you have to deal with on a day to day basis has increased tremendously. Right. Like we have information tethered to our hips, you know, with phones and tablets. And when you get home, it doesn't turn off. And when you're at work, like the, our capacity to do has because has increased so much that a lot of times you, there are multiple problems happening at one time or multiple situations that we need to, you know, um, right. how does this work in, in the sense of like, okay, I got 10 things that need to be done by Friday. Um, and I, I don't, I can't do a puzzle all day or, I, or should I be doing a puzzle all day? Well, the truth is, yes, you should, you should, you can in effect get a lot more done by not thinking about it than by thinking about it. So what you need to do is you need to write down the problems you need to solve or the things you need to accomplish and what is necessary to accomplish those things. And then you have to go do something else and not think about it. And that can be, you know, anything from exercise to a crossword puzzle to a jigsaw puzzle to playing with Lego blocks. I mean, you know, probably not cool to sit in your office and play with Lego blocks, but you know, there, you can find some pretty simple computer games. You can't play a really interactive video game. That doesn't work. You can't watch TV. That doesn't work. You can't read. That doesn't work as an incubation activity. And you can't, 
you know, you can't uh, talk or engage in a, a big text or email conversation because all of those require a lot of subconscious processing. And what you want to do is let your subconscious work on the problem at hand and occupy your conscious. So you can, you know, you can go out to lunch, you can, uh, you can clean the office, kitchen, you know, you can do a whole slew of things that basically will occupy your conscious mind while your subconscious mind is working on the problems at hand. And the truth is, the people I have taught this to found that they are a lot more productive. So most of us go into what we call the procrastination and guilt cycle, okay? So you have this thing you have to get done, and it's making you anxious, and you stall and you stall, and you get guiltier and guiltier, and then finally you squeeze yourself into a tight little box, and you force yourself to get it done, and then you beat yourself up for all the time that you feel like you wasted, right? Right. What this does is it says, listen, you don't have to feel guilty, and you don't have to procrastinate. You have to state the problem in writing first, and then go work out, go ride a bike, go take a shower, you know, go for a drive. And when you come back and ask yourself and your subconscious what the answer is, and then start writing, the answers will just be there and you'll be twice as productive. And then you're not guilty anymore because all the time that you were working out or doing a crossword puzzle or whatever it was, you now know I am, in fact, being productive. It may not look like I'm being productive, but that doesn't mean that my subconscious isn't right at this moment solving those problems. And the proof is in the results. Because if you can produce consistent results, oh, and by the way, not be stressed about it, you've won. It's a total win-win situation. The stuff you come up with is better, and you're nowhere near as stressed about having to come up with it because you know your subconscious is always going to give you an answer, and your conscious mind is not always going to be able to do that. So as a, um, as a founder, entrepreneur, um, it, it's interesting that you rattled off probably – two dozen things that that are sub-branded <laughs> under, under MacGyver. I'm like, wow, this is Swiss Army knife of MacGyver stuff, right? Like uh, that can be applied in the real world or that takes some sort of form and, and helps people do more things better and greater. Um, I'm wondering how do you make the decision of what's going to happen with the, you know, what are you going to focus your energy and time on? Because you have like, you know, the foundation, the, the method and the teaching and and just the number of you know the the properties that are the entertainment properties that are being developed. How do you filter and determine like what your order of operations is going to be with the MacGyver brand? Well, in part, and and I don't mean this to sound immodest, but it, anybody in any industry will probably tell you this is the truth. Okay, the fact is, I can be a lot faster and more productive than it takes the world to get anything done. Okay, so you know. Most of our time is spent waiting for other people to think about it and make decisions and have meetings and make sure they're not going to get in trouble for agreeing to do something. And so I can work on a project and then start to put it out there. And while the world sort of figures out how it wants to do it and when it wants to do it, I can be working on another project. And you know the old expression, you want to get something done, find a busy person. So, so I find that 
I can be extremely productive on multiple projects simultaneously because it's going to take the rest of the world a while to sort of get all its ducks in a row anyway. And in that time of decision making and, you know, and meetings and contracts and all that other stuff, I can be doing five or six other things. So, so in that sense, I don't find it really problematical to tell you the truth. If anything, you know, I still find I spend more time waiting than, than doing. Yeah, no, is it, you know, I kind of liken it to, you know, what the music industry used to be, right? Where they would like, all right, we have 15 artists that we're going to develop. And then eventually one of those or three of them will like blow up and cover the cost of everything. Everything else that we would like, everything, all, all casting a wide net was worth it because you're going to get, you know, a percentage of those that hit. Is that kind of the, the thinking in the myth? Yeah, myth- well, I mean, ask any songwriter do you spend more time writing songs or do you more spend more time after you've written songs going on tour and performing and promoting and doing social media? I mean, which do you spend more time doing writing or the, all that other stuff? And I guarantee you the overwhelming majority of singer songwriters, composers will say, Oh man, it's all the other stuff that takes the time, the songwriting, you know, I mean, I can go in and write the songs for an album in a month or two months. And then I, you know, and then it takes me a year or two years to get it all out there. <laughs> Uh, so you know it's not it's not the creative time that that that's consuming it's it's all the other stuff um along the along that journey you said something a while back and i thought it was it was pretty cool um you talked about the idea of like even when when you talk about macgyver versus hourglass which is the earlier the assignment that you had going into creating macgyver but you said they wanted something that was never been done before which as a marketer or as anybody who's in a creative industry we want something that's never been done before um but you said that the idea in its you know original form was fundamentally flawed um i would love for you to talk a little bit about pivoting, right? Especially as you're developing all these products and all these things that come out of the MacGyver brand, you go, okay, uh, this idea needs to change and shift this way. But like, what are some of your, you know, um, indicators for a need to pivot and, and how do you, how do you manage that? Well, um, so usually the way it works is, you know, I, I develop something even in a, a really sort of the preliminary form, and I share it with a bunch of people, friends, colleagues, you know, sometimes if it's, if it's, you know, aimed at a particular audience, I, I go look for that audience and say, what do you think of this? And then, you know, based on the feedback you get, you, you look at that and you go, oh, okay. So I thought, I thought it would work better this way, but everybody else is telling me it would work better that way. So I should just, you know, I should just pivot this. I mean, in the creation of MacGyver, by the way, the whole story of how MacGyver got created is really an adventure in itself. And if you go to MacGyverGlobal.com and the Creator's Corner page, you can you can read the whole thing because I serialized it in five parts. Because <laughs> the question I'm asked most often is how how did you create MacGyver? And and so I figured, you know what, I, I got to just write this all out so I don't have to keep answering that question. But the bottom line was. You know, Paramount and Henry Winkler's company had sold this concept called Hourglass, and and they 
you know, ABC loved it and they bought it in the room and everybody was, was just completely enamored of it. And that was because nobody in the room was the person who actually had to do it. Um, and then they hired me and they said, this is what we want to do. And what they wanted to do was, you know, an hour show in real time. So one hour of TV time was one hour of real time. And I said, oh, so you want to do a serial, which is essentially what 24 ultimately did. And th at that time, they said, no, 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 we don't want a serial. The foreign distributors don't want serials. We, they, we have to, it has to be standalone episodes. It has to have a beginning, middle, and end in each episode. And I said, well, you know, there's a reason then this hasn't ever worked, hasn't ever been done before. And they said, what's that? And I said, it, it won't work. And they said, what do you mean it won't work? And I said, well, in, you know, in film and television, one of the biggest gifts you have as a storyteller is the ability to jump space and time. And you've just given that away. And so we're going to have to pretty much you know, end every episode where it begins, because what happens if MacGyver, or the, sorry, it wasn't even called MacGyver at that point. I said, what happens if I'm, if our hero has Hank. to travel somewhere? We can't, we can't stop the show, you know, wait for this guy to travel. And <laughs> so anyway, they said, well, we're not going to unsell it. So you got to come up with something that works. And so I essentially struggled for the next several months to see if I could figure that out. And ultimately, that's how MacGyver was born. So. Um, now, we know you're incredible, um, <laughs> as, as, as seen in the last half hour or as heard in the last half hour. Uh, but I also think about this idea there's no I in team. Right, and when I look at the MacGyver um, uh, method website, and I see that you've got a professor from U of M. I went to Michigan State, so I almost canceled this interview, but um, <laughs> but I changed my mind. Um, there's another guy who's a tech entrepreneur. Like you've assembled, the, you know, additional minds around you to kind of help round this out. Like, can you tell us a little bit about teamwork and how that fits into MacGyverism? Have yeah. you ever, has anybody ever used the word MacGyverism, by the that, way? You know, we we love the notion of of uh, the sort of lone inventor or lone innovator, but the truth is, it's almost always a, a, a group of people, and you need a team. And I have partners for every project that I work on, and I listen to those partners, and we kick stuff back and forth. And I start with a germ of an idea, which, by the way, can undergo a really radical and dramatic change in working that idea back and forth with other people who, you know, are really germane to the project and have skill sets that I don't have. So I am, you know, acutely aware of my limitations, and I make it a point to go find people who are better than me at things that I don't presume I'm good at, and I build a team that, that is really designed to try and bring this particular idea to fruition, even if, the, even if at the end of the day, the idea has changed dramatically in the process, because, you know, listening is a whole lot more important than talking, particularly when you're trying to build something. And so I listen carefully to the people around me, and I take their advice more often than not. Um, and and even if I feel strongly about something, if if enough people say, no, Lee, you really want to go left here and not right, I go, okay, then let's go left. See, let's see what happens. You know, how do we build from this point? Right. So teamwork is essential, and, and it's very, very rare. I mean, listen. Steve Jobs was a genius. 
But that genius was only as good as the team of people he built around him to realize and execute what he was imagining because he didn't do it all by himself. That's great. Um, when, you know, uh, when did this kind of be in, uh, become instilled in you? Like, I look at your history at a technical high school and your dad, you know, kind of worked in shop and all those kind of things. So, you know, I, I like to think about how people f- go from tinkering with objects to tinkering with ideas, right? It, I, which I have a similar journey. I actually started off as a, an, an engineer at Chrysler and then hated it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, at, at the same time, I'm not dealing with like plastics and elastic, elasticity and logistics and all that stuff. It's more, you know, ideas and how those things come to fruition. So, you know, Kind of, I guess, you know, what What was little Lee Z um, all about? What was he thinking about when he was 10, 15, 20? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, I would say um, I've always been interested in stories. I always liked stories. Um, and probably the most profound transformative experience I had was I went to this very unique liberal arts school called St. John's College, which is not a religious school. They have two campuses, one in Annapolis, Maryland, and one in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is where I now live. Um, And the premise of this college is you read and discuss the great books of the Western world for four years. Everybody takes the same four-year set program. Um, There are really no electives to speak of. There were no departments. There were no majors. You're really just looking at these sort of great books uh, in math. You start with Euclid and you work your way over four years to Einstein and, you know, in, 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 uh, in history or literature and philosophy, you start with the Iliad and the Odyssey and, you know, you work your way up to really the most modern philosophy approaches. And, and you don't do this to become a great book scholar because you generally read each of these books only once or sometimes you even read only part of the book. But what you do is they were all small seminar discussion classes. And it wasn't about the information, which is what most higher education in this country is. It's not about the information. It's about learning how to speak, learning how to listen, learning how to write, and learning how to think for yourself. And those are skill sets which prove to be incredibly valuable, and I would say almost invaluable, because the further away I get from my college graduation, which is now some like 40 years, the more valuable my education becomes. Whereas if your education is information-based, in all likelihood, the further away you get, the more you know, obsolete that information becomes because it's constantly being replaced by new and better information. So, you know, it was easily one of the most transformative experiences of my life. And it really blew the top of my head off. And I had to really completely reevaluate how I saw the world, what I saw in the world, how I thought the world worked. And, and it gave me the capability to really apply myself to anything because man, if you can tackle Hegel and Kant and some of those other philosophers, man, there's nothing you can't look at and figure out. So it was, you know, really the experience that opened the universe for me. And consequently, when I decided, you know, what are the great books of today? What is forming 
the thought process of the world today, it turned out it was film and television. And I thought it would be really interesting to look into film and television and see kind of how that worked and, and how, if in any way, I could, you know, contribute to the way the world was thinking. And lo and behold, not by real actual intent, but sort of inadvertently, MacGyver happened, and lo and behold, it has had an enormous impact on the world. I think, I think and I just, again, I, I, wasn't, <laughs> I wouldn't say that I sat down and decided that's what I was going to do, but that's kind of the way it worked out. I like, I like that. And then MacGyver happened. I think that should be like, <laughs> should be like your autobiography. Um, no, is is I like the fact that you. I've asked that question to a few people, like, you know, where does so where is where are the roots of their passion and education? I don't think has ever come up, um, which is ironic because these are all like very smart and educated people in most cases. Um, so you, you know, when I think about what MacGyver is, and I think I read this in maybe in, in another interview that you had that wasn't as good as this one. Um, what <laughs> was I'm about? Sure it was. <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely sure. Uh, no, it was kind of about this this idea of you know you had letters coming in from parents and like oh my kid is interested in science now and so you know or math or technology and and now you've got stem and steam education and, and initiatives and you know a lot of traditional educational institutions can't keep up um and you have actually launched a a search for the next macgyver correct and kind of focusing on this stem and, and steam sort of uh scholar if you will right so so um Last month, uh, in conjunction with the uh, USC Viterbi School of Engineering and the National Academy of Engineering, we've launched an international uh, script competition called The Next MacGyver. Now, we called it that not because we're actually looking for another character named MacGyver, uh, but to use kind of as a category. And the competition is to come up with a female engineer type iconic hero that we can then ultimately turn into a script for a television series, which may, we hope, inspire young people and particularly young women to go into the sciences and engineering because the truth is engineers solve real world problems. And in this country particularly, there is a dearth of, of people in engineering, particularly young women. I think it's like, you know, 18% uh, of, of our academic population is female in the sciences. And the truth is, they're 50% of the population. And we need all the great minds we can get our hands on if we're going to solve the problems of the century. So since shows like MacGyver had an enormous impact in encouraging people to go into engineering and the sciences, CSI is another example. In fact, Anthony Zucker, the creator of CSI, is one of the mentors uh, of this program, of, of this, uh, this competition. Um, you know, CSI came along, and here were all these hot young female forensic scientists, and consequently, lots of young people started to go into forensic sciences because of CSI. So we know that that fictional TV shows, for instance, can have an enormous impact 
on people because they can see those characters and then imagine themselves as those people and then pursue careers in those arenas. And so the way the contest works is you can go to the nextmacgyver.com. All the rules are there. You just have to fill out one page of who the character is and, you know, what the series is about and a few other things like that. And then we will have several panels uh, of judges review all those things. I think the cutoff date is April 17th. Um, and and from those thousands or however many submissions we get, we will have a group of judges who will ultimately pick the top 12, and they will be invited to uh, basically a premiere event. At which time five of them will be chosen as as the as the winners. Each of them will get five thousand dollars. And even more importantly, they will be paired with a top Hollywood producer who will help them develop that script. So we figured if we could get five kick-ass scripts with female engineer-type heroes in them, the odds were we could get one of them on the air somewhere and maybe change the world in another way. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, that's a, a that's a, a super a super great initiative, um, and it sounds like a really good network of of people and, and organizations that are behind it. Well, the White House has gotten involved. They seem excited about it, and we've gotten a lot of really great press, which I'm very thankful for. And you know, it's sort of open to anybody. So, like I say, if you're interested and you think you got a great idea for a TV series that fits those parameters, just go to the nextmacgyver.com and show us what you got, because we're asking you to out MacGyver MacGyver and. I'm waiting to see what what comes out of it. So that's a virtual impossibility um, <laughs> <laughs> to out MacGyver MacGyver. But uh, but speaking of which, um, as as the creator of of he, um, uh, by the way, is MacGyver? What is that? Is that Scottish? Where, where is it, where's that name hail from? Is it North? Yeah, it is North? actually a a Scottish name. That is correct. Ah, yeah. Wow, that that's not how we got to the name, but but it is in fact a Scottish name. Right. <laughs> look at look at me. I'm I'm great. Um, no, when do you feel like your back's against the wall, right? When when do you need to like MacGyver a solution? <laughs> because like as the the man sitting at the apex of the whole methodology and the creation of it, I'm sure there's there's times where you go, oh shit, <laughs> right? Like what what does Lee's Lodoff do in his in his oh shit moments? Well, and then pretty much. I do, you know, I use the MacGyver method and I I say, okay, I need an answer to this problem. And I write down what the problem is. And then whatever it is, take 10, 15 minutes and put my mind elsewhere and let my subconscious come back to me with an answer. And lo and behold, usually there it is. So whether it's, you know, I'm stuck in the middle of nowhere and the car died and the cell phone doesn't work, what am I going to do now, you know, to, uh, to okay, I've got, I've got this a, a seemingly insurmountable problem on this project and I just take a step back and go, yeah, it only looks insurmountable. There's probably a way to think your way around this. And so that's what I do. And I guess because I've been doing this now for as long as I've been doing this, you know, when you know you have this enormous resource of your subconscious at your disposal, you just don't get, you know, you just don't get tensed up or, or anxious because you know, chances are you're going to get a great answer. That's probably better than anything you can think of off the top of your head. And so, you know, it just, 
just doesn't come up all that often. <laughs> no, that's great. Like you, like you, you know, so says the master, right? Like if you if you you've mastered a certain principle, is it's like I, I did the uh, Wayne Dyer practice of like, oh, I'm not going to get sick because you know most times the thinking, well, especially if you have young kids, you have uh, obviously grandkids as well. It's like, oh, you have a sick kid in front of you. Guess what? I'm going to get sick, and then the whole family's going to get sick, and then it's just going to be this cycle of germs and and bad health. And you know, it was one of those times I practice. I go, you know what? I'm not going to get sick this time. And literally, that was nine years ago or seven years ago. And um, I haven't been, like, bedridden sick since then. So, well, there you go. Um, I'm no master, but, uh, you know, <laughs> at least I don't have a cold. <laughs> I, the ultimate, I think the bottom line is we all really have extraordinary resources within us. And and the path we really want is already available within us. We just have to find it in us, and then it becomes kind of manifest in the world. We spend a lot of time going out there trying to beat up the world to get it to do what we want it to do. And the truth is, if you start with yourself, more often than not, the doors you want to open will open. The path you want to find is available to you. You know, it's usually not... By starting out there, it's usually by starting somewhere inside of yourself because that's where the resources really reside. And if you can find it in yourself in some way, and I know that's an easier thing to say than it is to do, but the truth is if you can find it in yourself, it will happen out in the world. And if you go out in the world and try and grab it by the lapels and shake it and make it happen, sometimes you can. More often than not, you'll fail. Or the world will punch back. Well, it has a tendency to do that whether you want it to or not. So, you know. Um, uh, You know, it's funny. I was going to read this quote uh, about you where you refer to yourself as a relentless optimist. But I don't need to ask you about it because I feel it. Like I feel feel your optimism. Um, So, But it it is time for your crush moment. Um, The show is called Innovation Crush. And I'm wondering what out in the world do you see? I mean, it could be in the the areas you dabble and play in or not. But um, what do you see out there that you have have an innovation crush on? So there is a new tech project that I'm really excited about, which I call uh, StoryMine. That's spelled S-T-O-R-Y-M-Y-N. And don't go to the Internet because we don't have a website yet up or anything. We will eventually. But it really has to do with being able to use fiction as a transformative tool. Now, up till now, most entertainment, and in fact, most education follows the same model, which is you make something, you write a book, you write a play, you write a TV series, you write a movie, whatever it is, or you write a textbook or an educational approach or a pedagogy, a pedagogy, and then you try and get as much of the world to buy into that as possible, right? You want it to be popular, you promote it, you see if it kind of, you know, hooks in and, and suddenly becomes uh a phenomenon like MacGyver, okay? And I thought to myself, what if we could turn that model upside down? And using technology, what if the main character of the next story you read was you? What if there was a way using technology to be able to provide people with personalized fiction, okay? Now, I didn't know at the time that I thought of this, whether this was really feasible, Um, but I thought to myself, it should be. I mean, I'm not a super techie, but, you know, I keep my ear to the ground with regard to 
technological advances, and I knew artificial intelligence and algorithms had really sort of progressed to a pretty impressive level. And I began to sort of explore this idea of how could fiction be used as a transformative tool in people's lives? Because the fact is, we all like stories more than we like the truth. I mean, let's face it, you know, An Inconvenient Truth was one of the top 10 grossing um, documentaries of all time. But The Day After Tomorrow grossed 10 times as much money as An Inconvenient Truth. Right. I mean, James Cameron made a documentary about Titanic which grossed $17 million, another, you know, the most successful documentary made about Titanic. But he also made the Titanic movie, which was a fiction, and that grossed over $2 billion. Okay, so the fact is, we like our stories in fiction form rather than in nonfiction or truth form. And I thought, okay, how can we use that effectively? And as it happened, through a friend said, you know, there's this guy who's been doing something like this with textbooks on the internet. And I tracked him down. His name is Philip Parker. And he's a, uh, he's a professor. He's the chair of economics and management at one of the top five business schools in the world called INSEAD University. It's I-N-S-E-A-D. It's a French business school. And he actually lives in Singapore, although he's from Southern California. Um, <laughs> and so I sent him an email and I said, listen, I, I've got this wild ass idea about, about trying to do personalized fiction using technology. And, um, and he wrote me back and he said, this sounds really interesting. And we began, believe it or not, a Skype conversation. We went into business before we even met in person. Uh, and we formed a partnership, which is now StoryMind. And we are going to use this technology in education. We're working with the, we're talking to the National Institute of Mental Health about trying to do a project for chronically ill children. So believe it or not, there are 18 million children in the U.S. alone who are chronically ill, most of them with cancer. Oh, wow. And they have a very difficult time understanding what's happening to them. And it's even more difficult sometimes for their parents and the children to communicate about what's happening because you know if something like this is happening to your child, you yourself are going through a very difficult, devastating experience, and yet you somehow have to be there for your child at the same time. And we said, suppose we could produce a personalized story for every one of these kids. They could be superheroes, they could be princesses, they could be, you know, wizards or magicians, they could be anything they wanted, okay? And in the context of that story, we could help them look at their disease, what they were experiencing, we could have the best therapeutic information built into the system, and parents and kids would now have a tool, as well as their doctors, to look at what was happening in a format that everybody could accept and embrace. So we're in the process, we have a program, it's called What's My Story, which we are now seeking funding for as our education programs. This has enormous potential in the self-help world, obviously, because in order for people to sort of change their lives dramatically. You want to lose 50 pounds. You want to stop smoking. You want to find a new relationship in your life. You want to start a new career. These can be very difficult transitions to make because you really have to see yourself getting there in order to get there. Well, 
let's say you love detective stories or superhero stories or spy stories. We can create a piece of personalized fiction just for you, and you tell us what your goal is, and you can see yourself in this story accomplishing that goal. So now all of a sudden, it's not so hard to imagine yourself getting there because we've already helped you see it. The same we think we can do in, in therapy, because a number of top therapists that I've talked to have said to me, how soon can we have this tool? And I said, really? And they said, you don't understand. The hardest thing when you're with a patient is to get that patient to think of things in a different way than they are. They're right. caught in the same thought process, and they can't see themselves beyond that. And if we could give them a piece of personalized fiction that we and they created together just by going to a simple guided user interface and saying, what kind of genre and who do you want to be in the story and a whole bunch of other parameters that you could punch in in a matter of seconds, you press a button, and in less than like 30 minutes, you get a story back. And now you can see yourself doing things in a way that you have not been able to see yourself before. And this could be an enormously transformative tool. So I initially started thinking about it just as an entertainment. And I realized in talking to Phil and the work that he's already done in producing textbooks in languages that no one had ever produced textbooks in before, that we could across a hundred genres, eventually across a hundred languages, produce personalized fiction for anybody in the world who wanted it for any purpose they needed it for. That's tremendous. That's really, really awesome. Um, and I applaud you for it because it's such a, you know, it, it, I always think about like the ability to see yourself or to see your problem differently always leads to a really awesome solution. Um, so, so last but, but not least, um, complete this phrase for me. Innovation to me is? Innovation to me is seeing a solution that I didn't even know existed 10 minutes ago. That's great. Um, and on that note, um, how can people find you? Where are you on the social media interwebs? Um, how can they MacGyver their way into your lives? <laughs> uh, your sure. Life? So, uh, so there is a, uh, there is an official MacGyver Facebook page. Uh, there is the MacGyver global dot com website where I can be found uh, and MacGyver method dot com is another place that I can be found. So if there's something you feel you need to share with me, uh, any one of those places are a good place to start and uh, you should be able to track me down. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lee. Um, this is great. I'm, I'm glad we, we got to do this. I'm, uh, I, now I got my giddy, my giddy schoolgirl uh, jitters out. I'm good. Now we can just talk regular okay. next time. <laughs> well, thank you, Chris. I, I appreciate you taking the time and, and, and your interest in all this. All right. All right, everyone. This has been another installment of Innovation Crush, and we will talk to you next time. If you like listening to comedy, try watching it on the internet. The folks behind the Sideshow Network have launched a new YouTube channel called Wait For It. It's got interviews with comedians like Reggie Watts, Todd Glass, Liza Schleichinger, Schleichinger. I've been friends with her for 10 years. One of the funniest people out there, and I still have a hard time with the last name, Liza. Our very own Owen Benjamin, that's me, takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more. 
You don't have to wait any longer. Just go to youtube.com slash waitforitcomedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore because it's here and it's funny and I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudin posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and three comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.